Jesus, we love our kids. Whether they are our biological children or the kids that we teach in school, our cousins, our friends, our neighbors, our nieces and nephews, we're grateful for them. The little ones sitting among us and the littler ones downstairs. We love them. And yet we confess that sometimes we don't know the best ways to love them. We don't always know the best ways to form them and lead them to you. And the things that worked so well in one generation don't often work so well for the next. And so, as people of the church, we often mourn when we hear the rising numbers of young people who are disillusioned and discouraged and despondent when it comes to the church and faith. And we confess, God, that we don't always know how to change that, except that we ask that you would find our kids. We ask for Watson and for each one of the thousands of teenagers that will be together at this event, the Nazarene Youth Congress Conference. We ask that they would have an experience of being seen by you, of knowing that they are so deeply loved. And we trust that if they see that and feel that and know that truth, they'll be okay. We pray for our kids among us tonight, the families connected to this church who are raising kids from teenagers all the way down to newborns, our toddlers and preschoolers, babies who are downstairs worshiping right now. And we ask, God, that the same kind of love that Caitlin and Caleb have witnessed among us, that they would witness too. We ask that you would make us the kind of church that so values the young and vulnerable among us that it not only forms them, but it shapes and forms us too our decisions, our actions, our words. May our kids see you and be changed by your love because of them. Lord, as we turn our attention in this service to hearing from your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and ears to hear and understand your truth. We ask that you would grant us humility that's needed for the learning process and courage that's needed for the process of obedience. We're grateful to be in this place. We're grateful to be together. We are grateful to be your people, even as we try to figure out what that means. We ask that we would know your presence and your truth among us 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here. I've been on vacation, but I'm glad to be back. It is uh, Kids Sunday this week, which means uh, on the first Sunday of the month, our elementary students are with us. And uh, kids who are in elementary school, I, I think that Pastor Hope has given you some crayons. She also has some construction paper. She's here in the back. And so here's what's going to happen this evening. I'm going to preach. That's pretty normal. And I want you to pay attention, if you would, okay? And the way in which I want you to pay attention is uh, if you hear something that you sort of like, okay? If you hear something that you sort of like, I want you to draw it. Okay? If you know the theme of what's happening in this text, I want you to draw it, okay? And I don't want just like little drawings. I mean, I want masterpieces, all right? Can you do that? Please shake your head, yes, if you can do that. Anybody need crayons or paper or anything? Okay, I think we're good. Adults and kids alike, I'd like to invite you to uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And uh, I have friends who have Bibles. If you don't have one, all you have to do is raise your hand. Somebody will bring you a Bible. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. We have both Spanish uh, and English Bibles. For those of you who are Spanish speakers or those who are practicing your Spanish. And so I invite you just to take that. This is a gift to you if you don't own a Bible. If you own a Bible and just forgot it, you can just use it and leave it there on your seat. But I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 4. And I also invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us out of uh, the very first book of the Bible. So hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 2. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees to grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing it into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where the gold is found. The gold of the land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second second branch, called the Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Aser. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. I've been thinking about this a lot uh, while I've been on vacation. And one of the things that I love the most about the 8th Street Church is that this is really a this this really is a safe place to have real conversations. 
The safety that we find in the relationships that we have with one another allow this. The way of Jesus is always good, although it is not always easy. And as I've said many times before, I I think that most people, including myself, are looking to do the easy. But what I found in the H3 Church is this. The H3 Church encourages a radical kind of discipleship. It's a a full-bodied commitment to the Jesus way. This means that we're open to, we, we're open and we open ourselves up to, to learning new things and being vulnerable enough among one another to explore and consider ideas and ways of being that perhaps we have never thought of before. It means that we are committed to wrestling with tough topics and we try to develop a God way of thinking so that we also might be able to develop a Jesus way of living. What happens here at the H Street means that, that when we engage our neighbor, neighbor, we listen well to their stories so that we might find a deeper truth inside ourselves. It means that we will be committed to putting on our thinking caps to consider our role in participating with God to renew this world. And, and when we find that our actions, those times that our actions have contributed to the destruction of this world, It's also safe enough for us to confess that. And we come here and we do what Jesus asks us to do. We repent, which simply means we turn around. By being a part of this community, it means that we are open to having our minds changed. And in that, we we might be transformed. So as your pastor, I have a couple of confessions to make. My first confession is this. I I will confess to you that as I have committed myself in my adult life to immerse myself in in the biblical salvation story, I have discovered that indeed God is green. The scriptures are rooted, and no pun intended, the scriptures are rooted in the nature of God and creation. Climate change, environmental issues, planet care, recycling, food production, industry, uh, pollution, progression. These are all hot political topics, and they have been for the last number of decades. But before they were ever political topics, they were actually biblical topics. They were theological topics. Matthew Sleeth, in his book, The Gospel According to the Earth, said it best. He said that God has the greenest of green thumbs. The writer of Genesis even gave God a nickname. They said that God was the gardener. And the scriptures indicate that creation celebrates and and has this, it, it celebrates and has this relationship with the divine. It suggests that as created beings, humans are actually made up of the very stuff of this earth. It was from the dirt that humans were created. Then they were given the life breath of God. It's like we've been made from the very stuff of creation. We say this every Ash Wednesday. From dust you came and to dust you'll return. One expert said the earth is woven into the very fabric of our being. It's like we're a part of this place that we call creation. We're we're taken from the soil, and and our DNA is like that of grasshoppers and trees and wombats, and it all spins in the same direction. And the well-being of humans is dependent on the well-being of the planet. Now, the, the traditions of both the Jewish and the Christian faith, you need to know that the, these traditions expected that true disciples of Christ 
would commit themselves to the examination of two very important books. The first one, I bet you can guess, it is the Holy Scripture, but also the other, the other book that they encouraged everyone to read was the book called Holy Creation. Each, each book is to be read, they believe, like Holy Scripture and Holy Creation were in dialogue with one another. Now, most of us can read the Holy Scriptures, but we should begin to practice reading Holy, Cre- Holy Creation. I was, I was reminded of this when I was on vacation. Both of my kids absolutely surprised me with how well they listened to creation. I caught both my son and my daughter admiring and commenting on things that I was completely oblivious to. I thought that as the adult, the parent, I thought that I was the one that was aware that, that and, and they were the ones that were hiding their phones. But one evening, my son Watson told me, Dad, don't you know that every single night I take a picture of the sunset? I was blown away. My daughter Annabelle shot these pictures and it gave me goosebumps. This third one was really magical. I said, Annabelle, there's got to be a filter. She said, no filter, Dad. It's hard to see on the wall, but it's amazing. On Easter Sunday, we asked you to send seeds to Clark Underwood's first ever internet community garden. We showed you the video early on tonight. People from the 8th Street Church did this, as well as people from all the world. And Clark helps us read the book of Holy Creation well. But we also read the book of Holy Creation when we get our hands dirty. We do it when we're riding our bicycles, when we're walking slow with our dogs, when we put down mulch, when we sit on the front porch with neighbors, when we jump into a creek without shame. That's when we are listening to the book. That's when we're reading the book of holy creation. The reading of these two books together is what we call eco-theology. It means thinking well about God's created order. It's about listening and prayerfully dialoguing with and trusting the dialogue between these two books that they will bear witness to the good, renewing work of God in the world. Now, while, it, you know, while you're reading the book of Holy Creation, I also invite you to read the Holy Scriptures. And when you're reading the Holy Scriptures, I'd encourage you, as you read your Bible, to take a green highlighter and highlight every single place that talks about the divine goodness that is talked about. And I, I would invite you to highlight every place that talks about the divine goodness of the planet or the divine goodness of nature, or the environment. I'd invite you to highlight every place where you see where God cares for animals and plants and, and wildlife. I think when you're done reading the Bible, you'll find that your whole Bible is green. You'll find that the Old Testament is green and the New Testament is green. And in the middle of all of that green, you'll read a story where a tree takes center stage. A tree seems to be the symbol, the method of controlling the chaos throughout salvation history. Do you know that when you read the Holy Scriptures, did you know that from Genesis to Revelation, that trees are the anchors that hold this whole salvation story together? In in the beginning, there in creation, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's there in Genesis. And these trees provide freedom and boundaries to humans. 
And then in the middle of the biblical story, there was a tree that was cut down by the Romans, shaped into the form of a cross so that it could be an instrument of murder to kill Jesus of Nazareth. But then it becomes this symbol of our hope that death and chaos has not won, that there is purpose and there is future for this planet and that all living being and for all living beings that reside on it. And, and, And through the resurrected Jesus, the whole world is being renewed and remade. Paul reminds us that he is the firstborn of creation and the symbol of the cross, the tree, reminds us of that. And then there at the end of your Bible in Revelation, there is a picture of God's glorious city when heaven and earth come together and everything has been made new and the description says that in the middle of this, there is a tree and it's the place that John the Revelator says where all life comes from. It represents what fellowship, true fellowship with God looks like now and forevermore. The tree in Revelation represents peace and wholeness and shalom. It's new creation. Throughout the entire biblical narrative, God fights victoriously against against chaotic forces, the behemoth and the Leviathan and the har. But, But you know what? God holds fast like a steady tree. And so whether it be the Torah or wisdom literature, or the Psalms, or the prophets, warnings are issued to those who ruin the land. The Old Testament implies that trees, are they line the way to heaven. They beautify, they provide food, give oxygen because of this amazing thing called chlorophyll. They make pleasant places to work and live and play and worship. Poverty is directly connected to a lack of trees. Go to a rich neighborhood. There are trees. You see them. Bushes and plants and shrubs and flowers and green grass. But in cities where people live on the other side of the tracks, there are no trees. And therefore, there are no squirrels, no birds, no bees. There is no oxygen-rich air, so there is more pollution, more sickness. And where there is no shade, there is more heat. It is no accident that neighborhoods without trees are actually harder places to live. And there is a direct correlation that trees make some prosper and a lack of trees make some poor. In concrete jungles like the projects in Chicago, the temperature is 10 degrees hotter or more than the neighborhood next to it with trees. Joyce Kilmer, you know uh, Joyce uh, Kilmer was a a famous American poet, and he was on to something when he wrote his famous poem, I think there should never, I should never see a, a poem as lovely as a tree, a tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast, a tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray, a tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but God can only make a tree. This shows the divine creation relationship. At our baby showers here at the 8th Street Church, we give away Shel Silverstein's book, The Giving Tree. We do that on purpose. Everyone in the church signs the book, and this book depicts a covenant relationship between a little boy and a tree, 
and the tree's unconditional, steadfast, redemptive love for that boy, the great Brennan Manning understood this story to be the gospel. Ancient Jews and early Christians believed that the earth was alive and humans were to live in mutuality. They had an interdependent relationship with the earth because they believed that they were of God, but they also believed they were of the earth. The biblical word for this relationship is covenant, and humans are in a promised relationship. They're in a covenant with the created order, and our work should be for the benefit of ourselves, but it also should be for the benefit of every other living thing that has God's divine imprint. Well, as the story of creation evolved in Judaism, this faithful group of God-fearing people They saw themselves living in direct contrast to their Mesopotamian and Babylonian neighbors. Now, the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians did not consider a relationship with the land. Instead, they ravaged it. They clamored for it. They claimed domination and over creation in order to make sacrifices to their gods. Then a little bit later in history, after the resurrection of Jesus and the growth of the church, this heresy called Gnosticism began to gain traction, and it's moved through history with full steam. Gnostics were deeply influenced by Greek philosophers, and they believed that the cosmos, this creation, was a colossal error. Creation was alien, they said, to our truest soul, so the less we have to deal with creation, the better. They believed that everything that was spiritual, like the soul and heaven and angels, were the essence of good. But everything like matter and the earth and our bodies were evil. And escapism for them was the strategy for survival. Now, that's a lot of boring philosophical stuff for you there. But here's what I'd like to tell you. That Gnostic heresy is pervasive. It permeates the American church today. I heard one, I heard one pastor of a church of 25,000 people say these words. There's only one thing on the planet earth that God cares about, and that is the human soul. Everything else he will burn up and he'll wipe it away. I heard another Christian personality mock the lefties, he said, that were trying to block a pipe, the pipeline project that was going through the Dakotas because he said, why not? We're not going to be around to worry about it. God is going to blow all of this up anyway. But it's even more pervasive than that kind of rhetoric, talking head stuff. It's more pervasive even in the grassroots level because we can ignore hundreds of thousands of acres in the rainforest that are being mowed down because we have the option to live in nice neighborhoods or we have the option to overbuild or we can, we can turn crops that could feed the two-thirds world into lands that, that are actually acting as troughs for cattle that are slaughtered for fast food restaurants so we can eat cheaply. Those of us who live in advantaged places can shut our eyes and not feel our part or our call to engage in environmental stewardship. That's Gnosticism. And friends, this is not biblically or theologically or historically accurate. It's it's heresy. The Jews, the early church fathers and mothers, the Catholic Church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church call for a holy reverence as it pertains to the land. 
as it pertains to nature, as it pertains to creation, they consistently ask themselves, and I think we should ask ourselves as well, what does it mean to be God's people who live in God's world? The story of the fall that we read here in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 is a direct is a direct response to this question. This is not just a tale that tells us about where sin comes from. This is a cosmic story of chaos and struggle where humans threaten God's holy order and they don't see God's boundaries as a means of grace. The boundaries by these humans are dismissed and, and, and the truth of what's in the human heart is revealed and who they are is revealed for who they are. They messed with God's tree. They abused it. They acted inappropriately. And in doing so, they foul everything up. And that's what happens when we mess with God's creation as well. The ancient Jews and the early Christians understood that the way we view creation and treat creation is deeply and intricately connected to the way in which we really think about our God. And it reveals who our gods really are. When farmers plow over perfectly good crops to lower supply so they might increase demand and fatten their margins, we can see who their gods really are. When the coal industry donates to political leaders that will cater to their agenda, that will change laws so that it's advantageous to them, so they can blow up whole mountains in, the, in Appalachia, which is one of the most poverty-stricken places in our country and even in the world. When they do that and they displace wildlife and they dump all the crap back into the valleys and they pollute the waters, you know who their gods really are. When a big conglomerate secretly dismantles public transportation, wrecks up all the bike paths and the sidewalks, then leverages its power to force taxpayers to spend 500 or 1,000 times more money to build roads, which then forces its citizens to buy its cars, you can see who their gods really are. And this has happened in most cities, including Los Angeles, Toronto, Oklahoma City. But it even gets more personal than that. When a team of Christians, like the ones that I've been with, go into a poverty-stricken area to do mission work, to build something for somebody else, but we go into the store and we buy a month's worth of water, and there is no Walmart, and there is no truck coming with more water anytime soon. And then we go out into the work site, and we dump all the water bottles, and we're careless, and we leave them lying around. And then we open up a new one, even though we didn't drink our last one because uh, I lost my other one. All the while, the native peoples there are, who are dying of thirst stand, and they watch. You know how those people view their gods. Now, Jesus said something like this. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. American evangelical Christians are more like the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians and the Gnostics than we'd care to admit. The way we treat the land and all living things within it, the way we think about space and matter is a direct connection to the way in, is a direct connection to what we believe about our God, and it's also a direct connection how we believe about ourselves. These first humans, this is chapter 2, had a very low view of creation. And in turn, they had a very low view of God. But do you know what they had? A very high view of themselves. 
And then, like them, we have taken God's command to till the land and to control it. And we've interpreted it like this. Be a dominator over it. Use it how you will. Make what it, make it what you want it to be. When really the Hebrew word of till simply means to protect and to serve, to tend and to care. Don't be like the Mesopotamians or the Babylonians or the Gnostics, this story tells us. Instead, you should be, you should embrace your vocation by being co-creators, co-gardeners with God. There's this other point of Gnosticism that's really important to know. And the point of Gnosticism is this. They believed that they held all the knowledge. They, they said they held all the knowledge and no one could tell them what to do. That sounds very much like what Adam and Eve wanted. So this leads to my next confession because I don't want to be a Gnostic. I confess to you that I got a large carbon footprint I'm not really good at this at all. As a member of the first world, I I have these options. I can drive and eat and use up my resources or anybody else's resources in any way I want. And, And I hardly ever give consideration that my neighbors in this city or in the global community don't have those same options. I'll confess to you that I pluck the forbidden fruit from God's tree all the time. And I do it without even thinking about it. And it's done to my detriment and to the detriment of my neighbors. And it's done to the detriment of God's planet. I never consider food insecurity. I never have to think about transportation. I only think about healthcare if the premiums go up. I never think about water, heat, and most of my wants, I actually, I actually cover those up and describe them as needs. So I figured, as people who want to be full-bodied disciples, that our church, the 8th Street Church, is the very best place where we can engage in real conversation over the next few weeks so that we might be the very best neighbors, the best neighbors that we can to those who live next to us, and to the very best neighbors that we can be to all living things on our planet. The temptation, when we read a text like this, when we read Holy Scripture alongside Holy, the book of Holy Creation is to ask this, what can I get out of it? Or how can I use this? But I, but I think that we are, by God's grace, being invited to ask, in what way can I obey this? How might I get in on this? So here's where I am. And maybe this is you too. Over the next few weeks, I'm willing to learn. And by God's grace, I'm willing to change if and when it's necessary. And it's necessary, I'll tell you that right now. And, and as we consider this topic and, and what it means to have an eco-theology, and as we have holy conversations about it, I am going to open my heart up wide, and I am willing to repent, which is just a fancy biblical way of saying changing my ways. But I know this for sure. I absolutely cannot do this without you. We are a part of a creation community. And Jesus invites us to read these two books and to listen to them as the Spirit speaks to us about how we might become these full-bodied disciples, living faithfully in response to this God and this land that is our neighbor. 
This week, Pastor Mikhail has been leading, over the last few weeks, but we had a conversation about this week. Pastor Mikhail has been leading a conversation among our pastors about our, uh, about our dreams for this church, this neighborhood, and this city. And as I listened to their dreams, I, I heard these things. The dream was to hold that the 8th Street Church would be a holding space, a safe space for doubters. That in our future, we'd be a multicultural church. Our dream, one said, would be that we would invite the rich to give out of their wealth to care for the poor. That we would create safety for kids from all backgrounds, with all kinds of abilities or with no abilities at all. And that together we would be able to find ways to widen the table through food options, job creation. And we would do this with intention and purpose. You know, most of the time, church is set up to cater to a group of God consumers. But we decided instead that together, our dream was to, was to start living into Eucharistic hospitality. This simply means that we have a dream of widening the table, and it will be for our benefit, but it will be for the benefit of our neighbors. And it is for this reason that, that we are living. It is because we want to live the way of Jesus who prepared a meal for those who wanted to participate. And when Jesus prepared his meal, it was a meal prepared out of the very elements of earth. It was a meal prepared with bread and wine. That is the reason why we come to this table every single week. It is the place where the conversation begins. So I want to invite you to the table as a way to engage this conversation that we're having. And before you come, what I'd like you to do is I would like you to maybe check in your own heart. Maybe you need to make your own confessions. Maybe you need to check and see and ask the question, if you have trifled with the tree and you are plucking the forbidden fruit, but maybe you're also seeing in your own self that you want to get in on this journey with us and discover how we might be able to engage in a radical way this Eucharistic hospitality. So I want to invite you, after you check, to come to this table. Everyone who is open to believe in the good work of God, who wants to participate in that good work and wants to see a new way forward, is able, is welcome to come to this table and receive the grace from God that is presented to them in these elements, but in the friends that say these words to you. So I want to remind you that this happens because of a very good story. And the story goes like this. In his generosity, Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Every time you eat it, I want you to remember me. This is a picture of Eucharistic hospitality. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood and this has been poured out for you. And whenever you come to the table and you drink of it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. This element as well presents to you Eucharistic hospitality. So you are welcome to this table. I want to let you know that we want no barriers. Our bread is gluten-free. Our wine is non-alcoholic. I invite you to exit out the left side of your row, move down one of our aisles, but I invite you to come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Nothing God offers to us can be taken. It can only be received 
because it is a gift. So when you're ready, you may come down one of the aisles, approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, and then uh, eat it. And friends, know that you are welcome to this table. You are welcome to this church. You are welcome to this community. And you are welcome to this conversation. So friends, come when you are ready.